I was watching the news the other night and uh, that videotape came on of Bin Laden. Did you guys see that? I don't know what you thought of that. Hopefully you didn't like it. But uh, it, was, uh, it was just weird, wasn't it? It's just weird listening to this casual conversation these people are having about, you know, killing these people. And, uh, but just the conviction on their hearts. And I, I don't know what that does to you when you hear people of other religions talk with such conviction, being so sure of what they believe. And then uh, the, the one guy sitting down talks about how he goes, oh, yeah, you know, I know a man who had a dream two weeks ago. You know, he said two weeks ago he dreamt that, you know, the, he saw planes hitting a building. Remember that? And then someone else in the background pipes up a little later and says, hey, I had a dream, too. You know, I dreamed that I saw planes, you know, running into a building and, you know, and, and the whole thing, you know, now they have prophecy and everything else. And they're all going, yeah, praise Allah, praise Allah, you know, through the whole thing. And I don't know what that does to you. I, I got an email a few weeks ago from a, from a good friend who's been coming to the church for, gosh, probably the last four or five years. And he said, he goes, Francis, you know, I, I've loved everything you've taught so far. He said, uh, the one thing I cannot stand, though, is when you put down any other religion. He goes, why do you have to do that? And why would you say that you would not pray with people of other religions when the rest of the world is trying to come together and accept all these other faiths? Why do you say your way is the only way? You know, and I responded and explained, gosh, I, I don't know what else to do. To me, that's the only thing that makes sense. I can't, I can't figure out how to take a religion that teaches that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and mesh it with another religion that says that Jesus Christ absolutely is not the Son of God. And how can I accept that? How can I accept another belief that absolutely contradicts what I teach? You know, to me, there is an absolute truth. And my mind always says you can't accept two things that are contradictory of each other. And as we talk more, you know, he eventually decided, you know what, I'm not coming anymore. And, and it's so hard. It's hard, you know, because then, then, okay, there's another guy that's leaving the church and saying you guys are just too, you know, uh, you're, you're not open-minded, you're, you know, you're, you're judgmental and everything else. Whenever that happens, it, it makes me think again. It gets me to sit down and think, okay, am I sure of what I believe? Because I'm not sure, then why am I going around preaching this stuff and, you know, getting more and more people out of the church and losing more and more friends. If I'm not sure of this, I, I need to find out. I need to rethink. And so, you know, every time I, I, I face something like that or, or see someone with so much conviction over their beliefs, it makes me think. It makes me evaluate. Okay, am I sure of what I believe? And yet, you guys, every time I've gone back to the Word, every time I've gone back to the Bible and history and prophecy, archaeology, I always go back and I say to myself, you know what? I am sure. I'm absolutely sure that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And this book is not just another holy book. This is the truth. And anything that contradicts this book is a lie. You guys, and as we get into... Yeah, absolutely. As we get into this Christmas season, it's so easy to get caught up in all these other things, you know, and this acceptance of everything. I remember last year when my daughter was in kindergarten, you know, she got this sheet of paper explaining what she would be studying over the next few weeks. And basically, it was shown the projects and things she'd have to do there in kindergarten to understand this, this holiday season and the different ways that people celebrate it. And showed how the first thing they would be learning about is Hanukkah or the Festival of Lights. You know, and they had projects and, you know, teachings and things like that. The next thing they would be learning about was Kwanzaa. Yeah, you know, Kwanzaa, about the African-American heritage. And, you know, and it doesn't really have to do with religions, except all religions. And it really takes place right after Christmas Day. And then the last thing they were going to be studying is Christmas, 
which is about Santa, his reindeer, and Frosty the Snowman. And so her project, she had to choose one of those three. You know, what are you going to do it on Christmas? You know, I mean, on Santa, the reindeer, or on Frosty the Snowman, because that's what Christmas is. And so here's a description of what this holiday season is about. Here are the three different things you can celebrate this Christmas season. And Christ was completely out of Christmas. And, uh, you know, so here we are in the Christmas season and, and we are here to celebrate this baby who we believe was the Son of God. Now, how much do you believe that? Are you sure of that? Because it's so easy in our day and age to kind of go, yeah, you know, that's, that's one way to celebrate and I'll accept that. But I'm not going to put down other people who celebrate other things or other beliefs. I'll just celebrate it this way because this is one of the ways to celebrate. Or do you really believe that this is absolute truth? That God really did send his son down to the earth. See, because I believe with all my heart that this Christmas story, as recorded in Luke, is absolute truth. That it's not just another Christmas story. It is the Christmas story. This is not just another book. This is the Holy Bible. But how badly do you believe that? See, we're going we're gonna to be studying Luke chapter 1 these next two weeks and the story of the birth of Christ and it's not, in your, it's not in your outlines, but if you have your, your Bibles, it should be in there. Uh, Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. And we're going to be looking at this in the next couple of weeks. Now, when we study the Christmas story, though, most people skip over the first part. Okay, we go straight to the angels, you know, proclaiming to the shepherds, proclaiming to, to Mary about the birth of Christ. But really, Luke chapter 1 starts with the story of Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth. And the angel Gabriel coming to them and proclaiming the birth of John the Baptist. And this is very significant. I'm going to read the story. It's in Luke chapter 1, verse 5. Because I don't want us to skip that. Luke 1, verse 5. It says this. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well along in years. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. And you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. Because this is a, 
This is how the Christmas story starts. And after this is when the angel Gabriel goes and speaks to Mary and, and explains the birth of Christ. But first, you, you can't miss this story. This is so significant. Okay, you've got this priest, Zechariah, and he, you know, they, they cast lots, they, they choose him. He is the priest that's going to go and burn incense at the altar. Understand, not every priest gets to do this. Most priests never get the opportunity to burn incense at the altar. There's so many other priests that they wouldn't get chosen. Zechariah gets chosen. And the Bible says Zechariah is an upright man. He's a godly man. He's going in the temple to burn incense. Once you've done it, you never get to do it again. Okay, it's a once-in-a-lifetime thing, an absolute honor. And as he's burning incense before the altar, this angel appears to him. Okay, and it says that he just gets freaked out. I mean, as you and I would also. An angel appears. And he says, you know what? He says, Zachariah, your wife, Elizabeth, is going to give birth to a child. Not just an ordinary child. But this child is going to come in the power and spirit of Elijah. Elijah is one of the two men in the Old Testament that, that never died. And it was told in the Old Testament that, that Elijah would come before the coming of Christ. He says, you know what? It's your child. Your child is the forerunner. Now, the reason why this is so significant, okay, before this angel spoke to Zechariah, do you realize that God had been silent for about 400 years? For about 400 years, there was no prophecy. At least nothing that's recorded. It seems like there's just the silence. We call it the 400 years of silence. From the last Jewish prophet to the time that Zechariah heard from that angel, there was 400 years when no one really heard any of these direct revelations from God. And if you turn back to the Old Testament, to the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, which was written somewhere around 430 B.C., so 400 years before the birth of Christ, there, I have it in your outline. In Malachi chapter 4, look at what the last words of the Old Testament are. Malachi 4, verse 5. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. And then the Old Testament ends. So understand, that's the last thing that's said in the Old Testament. 400 years B.C., he says, I'm going to send Elijah to you. And so then there's, there's all these people that are waiting for this Elijah who's going to come before the Lord comes. And then 400 years later, a priest is at the temple. He's at the altar burning incense. And the angel says, your son, your son is the one that's going to come in the power and spirit of Elijah He's the one that's going to be the forerunner that comes before the Lord comes to the earth. So understand, that's a pretty significant event. And I, I explain that to you because I don't want you to think that the Christmas story was something that just started 2,000 years ago. That's not it. This was prophesied 400 years before that. God had already said, this is what's going to take place. And, and also understand, it's not that this Christmas story started 400 years before the birth of Christ. It goes way before that. Do you realize that ever since the beginning of mankind, God has prophesied this coming of the Savior? This goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. Do you realize that back in the time of Adam and Eve, God had prophesied the coming of the Savior? 
What we read in Genesis, Genesis chapter 3. This is, this is the story of Adam and Eve after she took of the fruit, after they both took of the fruit and ate it, and God curses them, curses the serpent. And here he is talking to the serpent and he's talking to Eve in Genesis 3. Okay, this was written about 1445 B.C. And it's referring to an event that happened way before that. But this is just when this account is written. About 1,500 years before the birth of Christ, this was written. Genesis 3:15. I will put enmity between you, he's talking to the serpent, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Okay, what's he talking about? He says, I'm going to put enmity, you know, because the serpent's the one who deceived Eve. And he says, I'm going to put enmity between the two of you. And between your offspring and her seed, your, her, your seed and her seed. He says, what's going to happen is, is the serpent's seed is going to bruise the seed of the woman. But the seed of the woman is going to strike, do, do this uh, crushing blow to the head of the serpent. And it's all this prophecy of this coming Messiah who would come forth from mankind somehow, come forth from a woman, and yet while he was crucified, he comes back, he returns, and he crushes Satan. And that's what we studied in the book of Revelation for the last year. The whole idea of this Christ who was crucified at his first coming, but he's going to return, he's going to crush Satan and cast him into the lake of fire, ultimately destroy him. Now, the interesting thing about this prophecy, though, is when it says, I will put enmity between you and woman, it says, between your seed and her seed. Can that phrase, her seed, it's the only place in the Bible where you'll see the phrase, her seed. Every time in Scripture, when you talk about seed, it is always the seed of the man. Physiologically, that's the way it works. The seed comes from the man. So every time you talk about someone being the seed of someone, it's always the seed of a certain man. Here is the one time in Scripture it refers to the seed of the woman. Why is that? Because Jesus Christ was the only person in history who was born without the seed of the man. Remember, it was a virgin birth. There's no such thing as the seed of the woman. And yet back in Genesis 3, God says, no, there's going to come one who is the, from the seed of the woman who is going to come and crush the head of the serpent. So understand, we're talking about something that was written 1,500 years before the birth of Christ. Your faith is not something that started even just 2,000 years ago, but from the beginning of time, from Adam and Eve that this woman would give birth from her own seed somehow without the seed of a man who would come and destroy um, or crush the head of the serpent. Now, if that's not clear enough to you, Isaiah also prophesies about this. Isaiah, who, who wrote about 700 years before the birth of Christ. Isaiah 7.14 says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and we'll call him Emmanuel. God says, I'm going to give you a sign. A sign with something. You guys know what a sign is. It's just this miraculous thing where you go, okay, God is speaking to us. This is obviously of God. He says, the sign I'm going to give you is that a virgin is going to be with a child. 
700 years before the birth of Christ, it was prophesied that there's going to be a virgin. And and the, the word here in the Hebrew speaks about a woman of marriageable age who had not had intercourse. Clearly a virgin who was going to have a son. That's going to be the sign from God that this is of God. A virgin's going to be with a child and will call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel literally translates into the Hebrew as God with us. So 700 years before the birth of Christ, God gives this prophecy. Here's going to be a sign. A virgin's going to be with a child and you're going to call that child God with us. And isn't that what we celebrate in Christmas? God being with us. Isn't that what John 1 talks about? In the beginning was the Word, but then in verse 14 it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt for a while among us. And we beheld His glory. So somehow God is God dwelt with us. We got to live with Him. Jesus walked the earth. 700 years before He was born, Isaiah prophesied this. If that's not good enough, look at Micah. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, also written over 700 years before Christ's birth. He says this, But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. See, we sing that song, O Little Town of Bethlehem, and we think, well, Jesus was born in Bethlehem because it was such a cute town. No, he was born in Bethlehem because it was prophesied 700 years before he was born that that's the town the ruler would come from. You know, some say, well, are you sure that that's the Messiah? Are you sure that they're talking about Jesus? Well, look at what it says. Look at the phrasing at the end. One will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Wait, wait, so a baby's going to be born in Bethlehem? But his beginnings are from eternity? How can that be? No, if he's born in Bethlehem, that's when his life starts. Yet that's not what the passage says. It says this one that's going to be born in Bethlehem, his beginnings are from the days of old, from the days of eternity. So somehow this child was born that pre-existed from all of eternity. See, throughout the Old Testament, you get these prophecies about this one that's going to come. All the way back from the days of Adam and Eve. So understand, what we celebrate at Christmas is about a faith that that started from when mankind started. That God has revealed from the beginning. You see, some people say, well, I understand all these prophecies. And by the way, Jesus Christ fulfilled 332 of the Old Testament prophecies about Him. And some say, well... Maybe what he did was he studied the Old Testament prophecies and then as he read them, he says, OK, I'll fulfill this one today. He says you got to ride on donkey. Someone get me a donkey and I'll fulfill this one. Now, you can do that with some of these prophecies. But how do you manipulate where you're going to be born? That's hard. And it's not just where he would be born, but the exact timing of things. You've got to understand just how precise Scripture is. And I'm going to talk about that in just a second. Because even more significant, I believe, than the place of his birth was the exact timing of it and how that was prophesied. But, but first, let me, let me say something else. You know, because some of you would say, well, how do we know? You know, because these are all Old Testament scriptures that are in your outline. How do we know that we had all of these scriptures 
before Christ was born. Because couldn't people have written this after he was born and pretended it was older? Absolutely. But, a couple things. During the reign of Ptolemy Philadelphus, which is around 265 B.C., he already ordered the translation of the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. He already started the translation of the Septuagint. We had the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures 250 years before the time of Christ. Now, some say, well, how do you know that uh, you know, it wasn't changed over the years? I mean, do we have any of those actual manuscripts of the Bible that date to before the time of Christ? Up to 1947, the answer would have been no. But in 1947, there was a discovery, the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found out in Qumran. And these scrolls contain manuscripts that were absolutely incredible. Thousands and thousands of biblical manuscripts, okay, that dated to the time before Christ. In fact, they're dated to about 125 B.C. Okay, the, the actual literal manuscripts. You can see them. You can go into Israel right now and see them. I've seen them with my own eyes. I've read them with my own eyes. They're there. Now, the significance of this discovery is amazing because before we found those manuscripts, the oldest manuscripts we, we had were from 900 A.D. Think about that. The oldest ones we had were from 900 A.D. And now we discover ones that are from 125 B.C. That's a difference of over a thousand years. Now, what's going to happen over a thousand years? You take these manuscripts, you just keep copying them by hand, by hand, by hand. Over a thousand years, you probably have a completely different product over here, right? No. You guys, the amazing thing is they took a passage. They would take a passage of, of the, the, the documents from 125 B.C. Like, for example, they took Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, which is a very, very significant chapter because it talks about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And they take this from 125 B.C. and they compare it to the manuscript of 900 A.D. And you guys, it was word for word accuracy. Over a thousand year period, these scribes were so fearful of God, so careful, that over a thousand year span, it was still word for word accuracy. Isaiah 53. And that's the prophecy of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, which was written before crucifixion was even invented. So now you've got these prophecies. We've got the manuscripts that were at least 125 years, written 125 years before Christ was even born. And this is what we find on them. These statements, these prophecies about this one that's going to come. And probably the most amazing is from Daniel 9. Daniel 9 talks about the time of Christ's coming. It says here, So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. Okay, this is written somewhere around 536, 630 B.C. 
And it says that you can know that whenever there's a decree from the it says from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Whenever this decree is issued, he says, you can start counting the days to when the Messiah is going to be cut off. Okay, now, the interesting thing about this is we have the date of when the decree was issued. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 2. In Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1, we have a story. It's a story of King Artaxerxes and, and Nehemiah. And this is what it says in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1. Listen closely to the story. It says, In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine, gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of the heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried, so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take? When will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so he'll give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, by the temple, and for the city wall, and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. Understand that story? Nehemiah is requesting the king. The king says, what, what's wrong with you? You're so bummed out. Usually, you know, happy Nehemiah. You know, he goes, oh man, it's because of the city. You know, it's a city where my fathers were buried and everything else. It's in ruins. And, he, and the king says, what do you want me to do for you? He goes, let me go rebuild it. And the king says, all right, go. And then Nehemiah goes, okay, but can you give me letters? Give me some documents. Give me a decree so that I can go and, and not be hassled. And the king gives him the decrees. So now what, what Daniel says is you can know from that date, the moment that that decree is given, you can start counting off the days until the Messiah comes, until the Messiah is going to be cut off. See, but in that passage in Nehemiah 2, we have the exact date. That's the awesome thing, is Nehemiah 2.1, when it says, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. We know in history, King Artaxerxes started his reign in, in, uh, in 465 B.C. So this passage is saying this is on the 20th year of that, and it's in the month of Nisan. And when there's no date to it, that shows you that it's the first of the month. So if you take this date, basically, when you translate it, it, it it's at, at 20 years to 465 B.C. You've got Nisan 1, 444 B.C., according to this passage. That's when the king actually gave Nehemiah the decree to go and re rebuild Jerusalem. You still with me? Okay, now that translates to our calendar to March 5th. 444 B.C. That was a date when the decree was given. Now, what the prophecy says in Daniel, it goes on and it says, there will be 
seven weeks and 62 weeks, and it will be built again. Okay, so it's explaining that from that date, you can count off seven weeks and then 62 weeks, and it's going to be built again. Now, a week to them was seven years. Okay, when we think of a week, we think of seven days. But they, they would have Sabbath years every seven years, which we don't celebrate. We don't do anything with that, but they did. So a week to them more often meant, meant uh, seven years rather than a seven-day period. So if you take that, the seven weeks then equals 49 years. And that's how long it took to rebuild Jerusalem, those 49 years. And then it says, after those, those seven weeks will come these 62 weeks. And then it says, then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. So you, you, we've accounted for the seven weeks. Now there are 62 weeks. When you take the 62 weeks, go ahead and throw that up. 62 weeks is 434 years. So you add those 434 years to the 49 years you know, of, of the previous. So you've got 483 years. You take the Hebrew prophetic calendar, which had 360 days to it, and you multiply the 483 years by 360 days, and you have 173,880 days. Okay, so basically what that prophecy says is from the issuing of the decree, um, you can go, go ahead, go to the next slide, which was March 5th, 444 B.C., you can count off 173,880 days. If you do that, you end up with the date of March 30th, 33 A.D. The reason why that date is so significant is because March 30th, 33 A.D. was the date, the exact date, where Jesus Christ rode into Jerusalem on the donkey. That was the date of the triumphal entry where he enters Jerusalem. And that was the week where he was crucified. Remember, that's when everyone's screaming, Hosanna, 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 on that exact date. He enters into Jerusalem, and after that, the Hosanna stopped. After that, it's crucify him, crucify him. They cut off all of the prayer everything. And on that very week, Jesus Christ was crucified. And after he was crucified, you know what happened? It says that the, the Roman prince, Titus, this, this you, you won't see in the Bible, but you'll learn in your history books. The Roman prince, Titus, came in and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. And what does the prophecy say? It says, after the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And we know that by A.D. 70, the temple was completely destroyed and has never been rebuilt in these last 2,000 years. Now, you look at that and there are some people, there are people who say that they believe in the Old Testament. And they'll accept all of these scriptures that we just read. And yet they'll still say, but I don't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And I go, how can that be? How can you accept these scriptures your Old Testament scriptures, which a lot, of, a lot of Jewish people do, they will accept the Old Testament, but the Old Testament predicts exactly where the Messiah is going to come from, exactly when he's going to come, and explains that after he comes and after he dies, that the city is going to be destroyed. So to me, it doesn't make sense for a person to say, well, I accept that, but I don't believe Jesus was the Messiah, because I say, well, then who was? Someone had to come on that exact date, and someone had to be crucified, and since then, the city and the sanctuary have been destroyed. So the rest of the prophecy already took place. How can you say the Messiah hasn't come yet? I want you to understand that this is, this is perfect. This is exactly the way God intended from day one. 
This has been the plan since Adam and Eve. That your faith, what we believe in here, why we are so sure of it, is it's not something that was just made up. This is something that has lasted through history. And people have waited for it, people have hoped for it, and the people got to experience. And we, on the other end of it, get to see all of the prophecy. We're in a better position now than ever to understand that this is absolute truth. And people say, well, but... You know, that's great that all that's in the Bible, and okay, I can believe that, but aren't there other holy books that do the same thing? Guys, not even close. I mean, honestly, not even close. People say, well, what about the Koran? Doesn't the Koran have stuff like that? You guys, the Koran wasn't written until about 636 AD, over 600 years after Christ. That's when the Koran came together, and that's when supposedly. The angel Gabriel came and spoke to Muhammad. Think about it. This is the same angel that spoke to Zechariah and to Mary 600 years before and announced the coming of the Son of God. And then 600 years later, he speaks to Muhammad and says, you know, forget what I said 600 years ago. Jesus really isn't the Son of God. In fact, the Jews and the Christians stay away from them. Don't even befriend them. I can't believe that. Here you've got a book that's lasted through thousands of years. And then hundreds of years later, the angel, same angel comes and contradicts himself. I just go, I don't believe it. It's not even close. There's no prophecy like that in the Koran. Nothing like this. You're not comparing things of equal value. This is totally different. You'll say, well, what about, uh, what about the Book of Mormon? The Book of Mormon? You guys, that was written... Less than 200 years ago, less than 200 years ago, and it was by one man who claimed to get these golden plates from God and these magic glasses that he could look through and they would translate it for him and he would write it down. And then after he wrote it all down, they mysteriously disappeared back into heaven so no one else on earth could see them. And so you're going to tell me to believe in this book that this one man saw and I'm not going to get into his false prophecies and his background. But you're telling me to throw out thousands of years of prophecy and believe in this book that absolutely contradicts the Holy Bible, that tells you that you can become God and that women are going to become eternally pregnant for all of eternity, which is, I'm sure, your dream. Um, <laughs> you're going to tell me to believe in that and throw out these thousand years of history and prophecy, and you're going to put a book like that that no one even sees and put it on the plane of something that is proven for thousands of years? I just go, no way. Well, people say, well, what about the Jehovah's Witnesses, though? Jehovah's Witnesses in their Bible, you guys, their translation of the Bible isn't even a hundred years old. And their founder, when he was, he was put in a court of law, he lied on oath because he claimed to be a scholar. And he lied on oath and said that he understood Greek. And so what the attorney did was he put Greek letters up on a board. He says, tell me what these letters are. These are just the Greek alphabet. Can you name these letters? And his answer was, my way? And the attorney goes, you don't know Greek, do you? And his answer was, no. That was the founder of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Who, who prophesied that, I think it was 1897, he says, you know what, Christ is going to return. And when he didn't, he says, did I say 1897? I meant 1905. 
And he just kind of came up with different dates. 1907, 1914, 1917. By 1917, it was like his fifth try. Two-thirds of the organization left and said, okay, you know, we gave you five chances. We give up. But that one-third remained. And then they got a new president, Rutherford. Rutherford makes predictions. His prediction was awesome. He said, in 1925, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are going to come to the earth. It's not Jesus this time. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs. So what we need to do is build them a big mansion. And so they did, down there in San Diego. It stands to this day. That's serene. In 1925, they build this great mansion because they believe Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are going to come back to the earth, and they're waiting. 1925 comes and goes, and so President Rutherford says, ah, they didn't show up. Oh, well, I'll live in it. <laughs> he lives in that, in that building till 1949, until the day he dies. He kept it warm for them. You guys, why can't I believe in that? I just can't. There's no way my mind will not allow me to believe that. And if you ask Jehovah's Witness today, what they do is they say, yeah, well, we don't believe in Russell and Rutherford anymore anyways. We don't accept the founders. We don't accept. They're the ones that founded your religion. They go, yeah, but they were off. But these new prophets we got, we know they're real. And you guys, I can't accept that. You guys, it's not that I'm not open-minded. It's that it's got to make sense to me. You've got one book that stands head and shoulders beyond everything else. Nothing else is even close. And so until you explain to me something that, that can contradict this book, something that makes more sense to me, I will say this is absolute truth. This is the way it is. This is the only way to heaven. Why do I tell people, look, this is the only way to heaven? Because that's what Jesus said. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And you guys, I will continue to preach that message here. That he's the only way to heaven. And why do I do that? Because I love people. I love people and I don't... First of all, I don't want any of you to ever get caught up in some sort of false religion that's teaching something that's contrary to this book. And I want you, I just want you to do this. If you ever think about going anywhere else, do some study for yourself. Don't just get caught up in feelings and emotions. Ooh, I think I felt something when that person talked to me. Who knows what that was? You guys, do some study. I believe that God gave us a brain for a reason. And we're supposed to use our mind to find God. Use our hearts to find God. Everything we have is used to pursue God. Do some study first. Do some research. You guys, I say this because some of you, maybe you came from one of these backgrounds. Maybe you came from one of these backgrounds and you're having a hard time leaving you know, your family religion. You guys, i got to tell you, I know how hard it's going to be for some of you. And some, for some of you, you already went through it. Where when you discover the truth, you had to leave what you were brought up with. When you finally decide to study it on your own, you had to leave what mom, grandma, and so many generations taught you. And that was difficult. Man, that is so, so hard. But you've got to do it because this is about truth. This is about eternity. Truth is so important. Truth is more important than relationship. Do you understand that? You've got to value truth more than you value even relationships. 
See, I cherish the truth because the Bible says you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And yeah, I've lost relationships because of what I teach. But I'm not going to lie just to keep your friendship. I'm telling you the truth. Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. That's the truth. And we can't sacrifice that. We can't give that up. You've got to love truth even more than relationship. Jesus Christ was the Son of God. He came to this earth and He died on a cross for you. That was literally the Son of God who hung on that cross. And while He was on that cross, He was paying the penalty for your sins. And the Bible says that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. The Bible says that if you can confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. That's salvation. That's the only way to salvation. And I would be lying to you and not loving you if I were to say, you know what, just believe whatever you want and you'll get there. When I know in my heart and know in my mind that that's an absolute lie. And you may not like it, but it's truth. And I hold on to it and I will die for it. This is something I am so sure of that if you stuck a gun to my head and asked me to deny Jesus Christ, I'd say go ahead and pull the trigger. Because I know whom I believed. And I'm sure when I leave this earth, I'm going to come into His presence. The presence of God who loved me and from the very beginning of mankind had a plan of redemption for my life because He wanted me to be His child. And it is the most incredible story on this earth. And I don't want you leaving here today thinking, well, that's just another story. It's not just another story. It is the story. This is not just another holy book. It is the one and only holy book. And by putting your faith in this, you can be assured that you will spend eternity in heaven. And if this morning you hear what I'm saying and you're realizing, well, I never thought this stuff through, but I'm not sure that I have a relationship with Christ, I invite you, if you need to pray and ask Jesus to come into your life, then I invite you to just come on up to the prayer room. Me and Pastor Doug will be up there to pray with you. If there's some things in your own life that you're struggling with and you're not walking with God today, it's time to get that right. Because you guys, this is truth. And there is nothing more important than that. It's time to let go of whatever lifestyle you've been living that's contrary to this book. It's time to bow before the Savior. It's time to bow before Jesus Christ. And for the rest of us, we're going to spend some time singing and worshiping God. And hopefully after this study today, you can sing with a new passion a new assurance that you're not just singing up into the sky. You're singing to the Creator who has proven Himself to be true. That you can sing with assurance today that God in heaven hears your voice. He hears your heart. God promises that He notices our actions. So as we sing, would you truly sing to God? Would you truly worship Him? Because He hears you. And He wants to hear your praises. He wants to see your heart. 
He wants you to lift up the name of Jesus Christ this Christmas season when the rest of the world has forgotten him. Guys, this is about as politically incorrect of a message as you'll hear. Um, but you guys, we've got to be willing to stand for the truth. And, uh, and you guys, I also understand this is a difficult message for some of you to hear. I'm not belittling that. I, I still remember a few weeks ago, a gal talked to me at the coffee truck just saying, you know, I just came to visit this one week from BYU, you know, and as I shared the scriptures with her, you know, she's just saying to me, I know this is true, but I, I can't leave all my friends, my family and everything else. And I said, you got to make a decision. What do you love? And I know how hard I just felt so bad for her. And I know for some of you in this room, for you to follow Jesus Christ means you have to leave something else and leave something behind. And that's tough. And if you need to work through that with us or talk through with us, man, I am more than willing to sit down and just help you through that. In fact, afterwards, if you need prayer, you know, I just believe there are more of you in this room that God is calling this morning to get your relationship with God, right? Um, and I didn't say that in any of the other services. I just, I don't know, I just sense that God is working in some of your hearts. That you need to get some things right today so that you truly can be right before the Savior this Christmas. I encourage you to stick around after service. Come to the prayer room. Pastor Doug and some of the others will be up there just to pray with you. But you guys, this is a season where we need to uplift the name of Jesus Christ like never before and praise Him without being ashamed and being sure of what we believe. Are you sure of whom you believed? Are you sure that He is the way to heaven? I hope so. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we have assurance that you hear us in heaven right now. And so it's an absolute honor to come before you and speak to you. And God, we as a church body come before you and tell you that we remember your son, Jesus. And we will worship him this season. And we will make no apologies for that. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And we thank you so much for sending him for us. God, he is everything to us. He is our life. He is our only way to you. He is our only way to be forgiven. And we thank you, Lord, that you would love us so much that you would have him suffer for us, Lord. That is beyond comprehension. Thank you, Lord. And we will worship the mighty name of Jesus. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.